Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Home Alone Podcast, where we talk everything related to mortgages and home buying. I'm your host, Matt Gare, NMLS 1549221, Equal Housing Lender. Today, we're going to do a follow-up on our first ever episode. That one, should you buy a home? We're on to the next question. So, you decided to buy a house. What next? <laughs> this, uh, this episode, we're going to guide you through the immediate first steps that you need to take once you have made that decision that buying a home is what you want to do. So, a quick summary. Number one, consider taking a first-time homebuyer class. Number two, talk to a lender and get a pre-approval. Number three, talk to a realtor and pick one. Number four, get your team, that's going to be the realtor and the lender, talking to one another and on the same page. And number five, the fun part, go shopping. All right, let's break this down step-by-step in more detail, starting with the first-time homebuyer class. Okay, look, if you are a first-time homebuyer and you have not taken a first-time homebuyer class, it's something that I would really encourage you to do. Taking the class is going to let you learn all of the basics from for the entire home buying process, start to finish. And the, the benefit there is not only education, but also that when I, your loan officer, am dumping a ton of information on you during the actual process of buying a house, you're not hearing it for the first time. And that's going to make it so much easier for you to digest the large amount of information that we have to communicate to you in a very short period of time. In addition to that, if you are seeking down payment assistance or looking to use any of the various affordable lending programs, a first-time homebuyer class is pretty much a necessity. So again, if you want some help on the down payment or you're looking to get into, you know, like one of those first-time homebuyer or affordable buying programs, you're going to need to take the class. For people located in Western Montana or in the Missoula area where I personally reside, I'm going to send you to Homeward. I have a link for their website down in the episode description. If you are located elsewhere in the country, but you need help finding a good first-time homebuyer class, please reach out to us, and we would be more than happy to help connect you with those resources. Uh, There are different ways to track them down, but you can find my contact information listed in the description for this episode, and do not hesitate to reach out. Okay, so moving on to step two. This is going to be talk to a lender. This is the step that I see people doing out of order the most often. You do not want to wait until you have already picked out a house before you pick up the phone and call a lender. The pre-approval process, in some cases, is really fast. Sometimes I can get it done in two or three hours. But in some complicated situations, it might take more time. You might have a lot of documentation you need to send our way. And you really don't want to miss out on buying a house that you've already fallen in love with because you waited to talk to a lender. But there's really more to it, though. I mean, you want to know if you can actually get a loan before you start shopping, right? That seems logical to me. It's also really important to know, what's your capacity? How much can you buy before you really start shopping? If there is an issue that we need to address, you want to leave yourself time to deal with it. So for example, we'll see unexpected stuff pop up on credit reports way more often than you would think little collections. Maybe there's like a medical bill that the hospital just never bothered to call you and just sent it straight to collections. That's a real thing. It happens. And we discover these issues. What I have found is that if there's stuff on your credit report that we need to resolve, it usually can be fixed, but not overnight. So you want to give yourself time to deal with that or maybe other unforeseen issues so that you're going into home shopping prepared. Outside of that, don't you want to know what the loan is going to look like? 
I mean, buying a house is not a small purchase. It's in most areas of the country, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you're going to be taking out a loan that is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Knowing what your monthly payment is, really important. Knowing how much cash you're going to part ways with at closing, really important. So you want to get in, you want to understand your options around down payment. What are your costs and fees? What are you going to be paying each month? Your interest rate, all that kind of stuff. And it just seems totally crazy to me that people would start shopping for a house with no idea what it's truly going to cost them outside of the price tag of, you know, $500,000. That can mean different things for different people. You know, if you have really good credit, you might get a lower monthly payment. Meeting with a lender will give you clarity on all of these things. Uh, when you do meet with a lender, I would encourage you to seek a pre-approval, not a pre-qualification. These, okay, so these terms, they get thrown around interchangeably a lot as if they're the same thing. Ultimately, they're not. And it may be people just using one or the other inappropriately, but uh, various lenders also are going to define them slightly differently. The short version is, is that a pre-approval is much more thorough and involves a lot more due diligence than a pre-qualification. Pre-qualifications often do and can rely on self-reported information with no actual due diligence from the lender. So for example, a pre-qualification could be, it could be you calling a lender and saying, hey, I make 20 grand a month. That's a lot of income. Uh, I have $200,000 in the bank and I have an 800 credit score. Here's my debts. Uh, what can I buy? And you go, okay, cool. Well, based on the information you have provided to me, this is roughly what you would qualify for. That's different from a pre-approval where I'm going to actually pull your credit report. I'm going to actually look at your pay stubs or tax returns or some other documentation of your income. I'm going to look at your bank statements and I'm going to make sure that the numbers that you gave me actually match the documents that support that income or that asset so that the numbers I'm using to tell you what you can do are truly accurate. With a pre-qualification, that may not be the case. Um, so we want to make sure all the numbers are accurate, that you're getting a true pre-approval, that you're finding out what you actually can buy. Not only that, we want to be able to go and give you a pre-approval letter that you can pass to the seller. That letter is going to come from me, the lender, and it's going to say, hey, I have actually verified income. I've actually verified assets. I've looked at a credit report. This loan is going to close just fine. It's a way for you to provide an assurance to the seller that not only are you interested in buying the house, but you can. Last thing on the pre-approval process, we actually got a listener question uh, from a previous week's episode and they, they followed up and they, they wanted to know what questions are you going to ask during the pre-approval process and why do they feel so personal? Uh, that's super fair. So... <sighs> We're going to ask a ton of questions, I can tell you that. You know, it's going to be address history for two years, work history for at least two years, credit history, pulling a credit report, current housing expense. Um, tell me about your income and how it's structured in detail. What assets do you have and what kind of accounts are they in? Um, we're going to ask about past credit history and other financial events. You know, have you been involved in a bankruptcy in the past seven years? Are you delinquent on any federal debt? Are you involved in a lawsuit? And then we're going to ask for a ton of paperwork to document all of this. So I look, I understand that this can feel really intense and it can feel really invasive. And that's not unfair, but there is a reason for it. So as a mortgage lender, I can kind of explain it to you two ways. One is that we ask all of these questions and we require a ton of documentation because we have to. We're required to do it. 
Um, and that's going to be based on Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac guidelines when it comes to conventional loans, or in the case of government loans, that's FHA, VA, rural development. Um, it's based on guidelines established by the federal government. Even with those conventional loans that aren't government loans, really, really heavily influenced by um, the federal government through the FHFA, who is the conservator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are private companies. They're not owned by the government. They do have enormous government oversight, though, and the, and the federal government has a lot to say in what they decide to do. So they're requiring us to ask all of these questions. But why? Why are they requiring us to ask all of these questions? Well, a mortgage loan is a very big loan with a very long repayment period. Again, it's different from an auto loan. You're not borrowing $40,000 and paying it back in four or five years. You might be borrowing half a million dollars and paying that over the course of 30 years. Think about that in context. That's a really long time. Uh, also, there was this thing that happened in 2008, 2009 called the Great Financial Crisis. And guess what? It was caused in large part by poor mortgage lending practices. What do I mean by that? So the mortgage industry, they took your feedback in the 2000s. They heard that they were asking a ton of questions, that it was a headache to get a mortgage, and the process should be simpler. And so they streamlined it a little bit, and then a little more, and then a little more, and a little more, until ultimately we arrived at a place where we had lost sight of why we were due doing diligence. Do, <laughs> we had lost sight of why we were doing due diligence. And you could go into a mortgage lender's office and get something called a stated income, stated asset loan. This is a real thing. You could, if you had good enough credit, walk into a mortgage lender, say, I would like to borrow $300,000. I make $20,000 a month and I have, uh, you know, $200,000 in, in the bank. And they'd go, okay, no due diligence. They wouldn't look at a pay stub or anything else to verify that you actually had income to repay the loan. They weren't checking on your assets. And so what ended up happening was a lot of people were getting loans that they clearly, clearly did not have the ability to repay. And that set people up to fail. That set people up to have loans that they weren't going to be able to pay. And then when values on homes tanked, they couldn't sell the home because they owed more than they could sell it for. So their only option became foreclosure. Uh, you know, go watch The Big Short or one of those movies. They actually explain it really, really well. Um, but in short, because we weren't doing enough due diligence, a huge financial crisis tanked the economy of more or less the entire world. And then Congress passed a bunch of legislation, including an act called Dodd-Frank that really heavily regulates the mortgage industry and says, hey, you guys have to do due diligence before you give people a ton of money. So that's where we are. That's why we are asking so many darn questions. I apologize that it feels kind of invasive sometimes. Know that we are not there to make you uncomfortable, that we are just trying to guide you through the loan process as best we can. Um, that being said, if you're, if you're being asked questions that make you feel uncomfortable, it, it's okay to ask, you know, like, hey, I'm happy to share that, but can you explain why? I, I think that being able to explain to your clients why you're asking for certain documents or asking certain questions is really important, and there should be a decent explanation there. Moving on to the next step, picking a realtor. If you are buying a home, so if you're the buyer, not the seller, an important thing to understand is that the seller is actually going to pay for the cost of your realtor in the vast, vast majority of scenarios. There are, of course, exceptions to this, but let's think about that. If you can hire a realtor, a professional to guide you through the home buying process at no cost to yourself, 
Like, why would you not do that? Even if there is cost associated, I do believe that good realtors deliver value. And that's about more than just getting you the best price. Yes, they are there to help you with negotiating. They are there to help you with what is an appropriate price to offer on a home. But it's about more than that. They are going to help you navigate a process that is more complicated and more regulated than you might think. There are required disclosures that you need to get or give and sign. Um, They might be aware of pitfalls that you can avoid by doing due diligence that you might not think to ask about. You know, stuff like, hey, you're going to get a home inspection, right? Okay, yeah. What's that going to include? And that's different based on location. Like, are you going to have it inspected for termites or other pest infestations? That's applicable in some parts of the country and not applicable in others. And they can help you to navigate things like that. You know, here in Missoula County and Ravalli County, uh, wood-burning stoves, you know, uh, A handful of miles can make a big difference on whether or not you have to take that out of the house when you buy it. And if you don't, you know, there could be some ramifications for you. And a realtor is going to know these sort of things and help you work through that. I do want to emphasize that I think a good realtor is very important to have, not just any realtor. And I mean, frankly, that applies to mortgage lenders too. There are, in the real estate space, there's good actors, there's bad actors, just like anywhere else. So it's important that you kind of try to find someone that's good. So yeah, how do you do that? How do you find and select a good lender versus a bad lender or a good realtor versus a bad realtor? How do you sort through that? Well, for one, get referrals. You know, ask your friends and family who they've worked with and whether or not they've liked working with them. Um, Outside of that, ask other people in the industry. You know, you can ask title companies who they think is doing a good job. If you have a lender that you're working with and you really trust, ask them who they think is a good realtor. I work with realtors all the time. I have a pretty good idea of who I think does a good and bad job. And that cuts the other way too. You know, if you've got a realtor that you're working with that you've known and you really trust them, ask them who they think is a good lender because they interact with lenders a ton and they probably have a pretty good idea who's doing a good and bad job. Um, Technically, lenders and realtors, you know, we can't pay each other for referrals. Does it happen? Yes, it does. Uh, It is technically illegal. But so in theory, there shouldn't be a financial incentive there. But, you know, use your common sense. Um, I also, another resource, pardon me on that, another resource, housing nonprofits. You know, reach out to a nonprofit. So one of those places that does those first-time homebuyer classes, they can be a great resource for referrals. I haven't found that a nonprofit is going to be super likely to refer uh, unethical lenders and realtors. You know, why would they? The other thing that you can do to gauge whether or not someone is the right fit, look at professional behavior. If your lender or realtor is like calling or texting you at 1030 or 11 at night, that's probably not a great sign. You know, are they answering your questions? Are they doing so in a timely manner? Are they giving detailed responses? Are they educating and helping you? That's probably a good sign. Uh, I've seen all kinds of weird stuff. So, you know, trust your gut. If it seems off, it probably is. Okay. On to step three. Once you have your... Oh, pardon me, step four. Once you have your lender and realtor picked out, you want to get them in touch with one another and have them working on the same page. A lender and a realtor, in my opinion, should function as a team that is working on your behalf, not two separate parties. They do different things, but those things overlap some. When the lender and realtor are communicating proactively and they are on the same page, both parties can deliver greater value to you, the customer. If they aren't on the same page, it can cause really serious problems. So let's give an example of what can happen when a lender and a realtor aren't communicating. 
this one's actually from, you know, my personal history. Seller credits that get negotiated. Uh, when you are asking for a seller credit to pay things like closing costs, great, you can get that. The seller can cover a lot of that, but they can only cover certain items. They cannot cover your down payment. Go check out our down payment episode. We talk about that. Um, but what this means is that functionally, there's a cap on how much seller credit you can get because there's only certain costs and fees and items that are eligible to be paid by that credit. I, in one situation, had a realtor who had negotiated a $30,000 credit from the seller to the buyer without discussing it with me. I had no idea this was happening. And this is on a transaction where we only had $7,000 in eligible costs and fees, approximately. So what happens is we get all the way through the loan process. I've spoken with the realtor multiple times, checked in with them, said, hey, anything I need to know, here's what's going on on my end. And four days before closing, the title company reaches out and says, hey, you know, our numbers don't match. You're missing this enormous $30,000 seller credit. Holy smokes. I should not be finding out about that from the title company four days before closing. Do you want to know what happened here? We could only use 7,000 of it. That remaining $23,000 essentially disappeared. The buyer never got the benefit of that. Had I been aware that they were negotiating or that they were able to get that large of a concession, this could have been really, really easily avoided by just structuring it a little bit differently. Uh, I mean, and this is an agent that I had specifically said, hey, don't negotiate anything without talking to me. So it, it's really important that your team is working together um, because the potential ramifications of that are literally lost money. In this case, a pretty substantial amount. So once you have your team selected, they should be talking to each other. Once that's happening and they're on the same page, you get to do the fun part. You get to go home shopping. Woo! Uh, it's exciting, but also can be stressful. So buckle up. It's a fun ride. But yeah, that's it. That's all we've got for today. I hope that you learned something. And I want to remind everybody that, hey, if you've got feedback, if you have questions, if you have topics that you want us to cover, please reach out. My contact information is all listed in the episode description, and we would genuinely love to hear from you. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a positive review or sharing the podcast with your friends so that we can kind of spread and grow a little bit. With that, I'd like to say that I hope you're having a great day and that you have a safe journey home. <laughs>